As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. of the Keith Law Show. My guest this week will be Nick Sharma, who was on two years ago uh, when his book, The Flavor Equation, was coming out. He's got a new book out called Veg Table, which I think is wonderful. And also thought with the holidays coming, great time to have somebody on to talk generally about cooking. And uh, especially if you're trying to be a little bit more vegetable-centric in your eating, but not straight vegetarian, although the cookbook has lots of vegetarian recipes. It also has some that are not vegetarian and lots of ways you can substitute in and out. And that's the kind of cooking that I'm particularly going for. And I've been a fan of Nick's work for some time. So it was great to have him on the show again. For folks who subscribe to The Athletic, I do have a post up on the signings of Sonny Gray by the Cardinals, Kenta Maeda by the Tigers, and a little note on the Twins who now need to go get some pitching, honestly. And uh, what I think they might want to do. Uh, A lot of folks came back and said they think the Twins should be, they're going to put Chris Paddock in the rotation. And let's just say I'm not seeing that. Uh, Chris Paddock was good five years ago now and expecting him to be good and healthy and effective enough to handle 25 starts is, I guess nothing is impossible, but it seems awfully optimistic to me. I will also have a post going up on Paste any day this week, actually, uh, looking at some of the best small box games, board games of the year, most of which would fit in a stocking. So, and I get a lot of those games to review, and often I like them, but they feel a little small, maybe to do a full-length review over at Pace. So I've been saving some of them up over the course of the, really over the whole year to mention those. And also they're, they are, they're great gifts for stockings. And I know even if you're just talking about adults or teenagers, sometimes finding gifts to put in people's stockings, if you do stockings, obviously, can be a little bit of a challenge. And most of these games are under $20. Some are only about 10 to $12. And that just kind of hits the spot. And then they take up a lot of space in the stocking, which is also a pretty valuable thing. And uh, for those of you who have not subscribed, I do have a free email newsletter 
It's just Keith Law, uh, sorry, tinyletter.com slash Keith Law. And have resumed it in the last couple of weeks. I had sort of fallen away from it for due to travel and some other personal matters. But I've been back on it. I've sent it out three times, I think, in the last month. And I'm shooting for weekly. May not always get to that goal, but please do sign up. It's free. It's just more words. I also, every time I send one out, link to everything I've written, regardless of where, since the last newsletter. And so with Twitter, I refuse to call it by the new name, dying a slow, painful death. Uh, that might actually be the best way to keep up with things I am writing. You can also find me on Blue Sky, where I'm at Keith Law, Spoutable, also Keith Law. Thread's been posting there more as well. That's Mr. MR Keith Law, same as on Instagram. And I do post on Instagram. It's not baseball stuff, but if you're interested in food and board game stuff and doing board game giveaways over there, Instagram is the place to follow me. So there's lots of me out there, even if I won't be on the Twitter so much anymore. Now, it's my great pleasure to welcome back to the podcast, Nick Sharma, who is the author of now three cookbooks. His latest is called Veg Table, V-E-G hyphen T-A-B-L-E, which is out now. I have a copy in my hands right now. You can also find and follow Nick on several social media platforms. He's great on Instagram and now threads uh, at uh, Brown Table, A-B-R-O-W-N-T-A-B-L-E. You can also find his newsletter, The Flavor Files, at Nick Sharma, N-I-K-S-H-A-R-M-A dot substack dot com. Nick, welcome back to the show. Hi, Keith. Thanks for having me back. So I want to talk top level first about this book. This is your third cookbook. I own all of them, Season, The Flavor Equation, and now this one. And this is very vegetable focused. And other than the fact that that's kind of on trend right now, tell me a little bit about why you chose this specific focus for the book. Sure. So my first book season was about spices. The second book was mm -hmm. kind of into uh, the chemistry of flavor and what chemistry, biology, physics of flavor, everything, right? And so then the next uh, book, I really wanted something a little fun and friendly because I was writing it during the pandemic. And during the pandemic, I realized, oh, you know, people are really bogged down by cooking because it's not everyone's, it doesn't bring everyone as much joy as it does to me. And the second thing is, so people are looking for like short, quick, fast, uh, easy to put together, but bold on flavor, which is a tough thing to deliver because the skills may not be restaurant-like, but people want that restaurant feeling at home during the pandemic. So I decided what if I could challenge myself to write a book on vegetables. And since I had proposed this book in 2020, this was way before vegetables were becoming popular. And it just coincided that I would release this book at a time when everybody was releasing cookbooks on vegetables. So my spiel has always been about the science of cooking and flavor. So I try to bring both of those elements in into this cookbook. And it's very fun narrative. Uh, you know, the style of writing is also just very casual in this in this book in the recipes and i just wanted to have fun with this book so people wouldn't feel bogged down by the weight of anything and i could show them hey science is fun but if you don't like science at least apply the science to your cooking and get away with fast flavorful results yeah notice the intro to the book it looks a little bit like it's going to be a botany textbook and i don't mean that as a criticism actually enjoy mm -hmm. it because i like your science-based approach i know you have a science background as well but mm -hmm. i'm curious also like I mean, I think I get it after reading it too, but for folks who don't, you do a lot of the taxonomy of vegetables and how we, you know, and how honestly and 
you know, some of it is the science description, but a lot of it is the food description. I go through this with my kids all the time. I like to tease them. Hey, you're a tomato. That's a fruit. That's a fruit. Oh, eggplant is a berry. And they're like, what are you talking about? That's not yeah. strawberries. And I'm like, no, those aren't berries, right? Because I'm just that kind of dad, obviously. <laughs> but, you know, explain to me, to everyone, sort of what's the value in your mind of going through and understanding some of the science and biology and botany of these different plants before you get into the actual recipes, which obviously are the meat, no pun intended, of the book. Yeah, it was very important to me practically because if I'm going to teach people how to apply a technique, I want them to realize that often a technique can be applied to vegetables that are grouped together because they share the same biology. So it's one lesson applies to you know a group of, um, I was going to say people, a group of vegetables that uh, you know, and so it makes it so easy then because, for example, the first chapter is about the Amaryllis family. And if you look at the table, uh, the index, it doesn't say the Amaryllis family. It just says chapter one, onions, garlic, leeks. And what I've done is I've grouped and named these chapters by the vegetables that people would go and buy. So if you're looking for something in the in the grocery store or at the farmer's market, or perhaps you have something sitting in the fridge and you don't know what to do with it, you'd go to this book, open the chapters, and you would see, oh, onions, let me go to this chapter, and this could be a main course now. So based on that idea, uh, that's how it was set. And then when you come to the actual chapter in the book, you look in, there's that introduction that you mentioned about the Amaryllis family or any of the other plant families, and then it gets into the details. So what happens when you group things that are similar by biology, it makes it really easy to teach someone that, hey, if you apply this one ingredient or this one technique, you'll get the best flavor or it'll make cooking easier or faster in the kitchen. So that was my goal when structuring the book. I want to go a little deeper on that because you do something that, that I love and that to me is kind of the big example of I didn't know this before I got into cooking, which is the brassicas. What, you know, most people would, if they know that, they would think of either cabbage or broccoli, not realizing those are the same, right? Broccoli is a cabbage. Many, mm -hmm. many things we eat as vegetables do turn out to be in the brassica family and cabbages. And, and to me, this is the, you know, I, I hate to say it's my favorite chapter because I'm still working away, my way through it, but there's so much in this chapter and so many different styles. And I think you really show off the versatility of a family of vegetables that most people including my kids, if I say cabbage, it's like, ugh. And trust me, I felt that way as a kid because my mom would make corned beef and cabbage and I would say all sorts of horrible things about how the house smelled afterwards. But now I love it. I love the whole family and you really show off so many different ways of preparing this and also things I didn't even realize were in that particular family because, again, it is so broad. Mm -hmm. It's probably one of the broadest um, or rather largest family of edible plants that I found besides uh, the solensatia, which is the potato, the nightshade family. Those were the two big ones in the book. And with the brassicas, they come in different shapes, textures. A lot of them are winter vegetables, but the fact that they're grown and originated in different parts of the world gave me so many different options and ideas to incorporate them. Now, of course, it's impossible for me to include everything in the book and you know, every uh, way to cook them. But there was so much fun in this book, in this chapter, especially because I could talk to people about folding leaves. And one of the things that I'm really fascinated by is the art of carving fruits that's done in Singapore. When you know, you go to uh, South Asian countries, they really do that so beautifully. 
And for me with vegetables, a lot of the vegetable cooking that I've seen in recipes, a lot of them focus on fast, which means chop, saute, kind of like fry, stir fry, and then that's done, which is great. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think just this book, I really wanted to showcase that you could grab a leaf, fold it, like the collards, there's a, you know, there's a dish for collards patra where you take a bunch of collard leaves, you stack them by, and glue them together by using um, a mixture of chickpea paste and yogurt that's seasoned. And then you fold that up, steam it, so it, it kind of glues everything together in the form of a long burrito, cut that up into little rolls, and then you pan fry them and it turns crispy. But that's such a fun, simple thing to do that provides this dramatic effect that seems that people have been working for hours on. The cabbage. So in the book, I do cabbage rolls. This is a dish that I grew up eating with because my grandmother used to make it. And what she'd do was fill it up with seasoned beef that was pre-cooked or lamb. And what I did was I make a vegetarian version using mashed potatoes and lentils. Again, taking something as common as a cabbage that people eat year round and doing something fun like rolling them. For me, that was actually one of the most fun recipes in the book because it's so easy, but also so dramatic in its effect. And it's one of those things where you can get kids involved. You know, usually people think about, oh, let's bring kids in to cook cookies or cakes and all that stuff during the holidays. But I think it's really important to also showcase savory foods with them, like bring them in to do something as simple as this. And then they feel more appreciative of vegetables. Because I think it's such a sensory thing with cooking. You can appreciate food in all these different ways when you're touching it. And for a child who's kind of on sensory overload at that age, or for a young child, it's such a beautiful way to just get them involved and appreciate food. Oh, I totally agree. And they take ownership. They feel ownership of it. And they're more mm -hmm. likely to taste it, which I know with the younger, you know, my, my daughter's a teenager now. I have two younger stepdaughters. And I think back to when my daughter was that age, just getting them to try is the biggest challenge. And you can't make them like it. But if they never try, you'll you'll never know. And then my daughter would sort of randomly be like, I like duck. I like mushrooms. I like Brussels sprouts, the one that still shocks me. because I don't think I like Brussels sprouts until I was about 30. <laughs> but also, one thing that I love about this book, and you even make a point of this too, is the first time you've included pasta recipes in a cookbook, um, which is great. And I've already tried at least two of them. Um, the broccoli miso sauce was a big hit, I have to say. Um, and wildly unexpected. And I wanted to ask sort of... Do you feel like, I mean, you, you have a global background and a very global perspective. You put ingredients into pasta dishes that I grew up Italian-American. I'm three-quarters Italian. Yeah. I don't, I, I'm not offended, right? But I look and I say, well, I wouldn't have thought to do that. I would never have thought to put miso in a pasta dish. But it worked beautifully. And I think you even say it sort of takes the role of anchovies in a lot of traditional dishes, which is a big umami ingredient in Italian cooking. So I'm just... Again, it's a bit of curiosity, but what's your approach? Do you just sort of feel like, hey, I'm not Italian. I don't come from that tradition. I can throw anything in, which, by the way, is awesome. I think it makes these recipes so interesting and unlike so many other – I mean, I have a lot of cookbooks. I don't have a pasta with miso dish anywhere except in this one. <laughs> uh, that's a good point. That's actually a very good point that you bring up. So it goes back to my background a little bit because I grew up in a bicultural household, different faiths. My mother's Catholic, my dad's Hindu. Then I moved to America. So you can imagine that I just live my life experiencing foods in very different ways. And because I grew up in a household where things were so different, there was never a notion that there were also Anglo-Indian influences because of the effect that colonialism had on my mother's community. Uh, the food was always put out 
to survive, kind of. This is what my mother knew to cook or what she was familiar with. This is what my dad knew, so he cooks too. And so they'd serve these random things at dinner that was never a themed dinner, so to speak. It wasn't like one thing. And because of that, I think it just made it really easy to for me to, I don't have, I guess that wall in my head or that barrier that it has to be a certain way. I'm expressing food as the, an expression of the way I've lived and the way I, and I always tell people like, this is not authentic. If you're looking for authentic food, I'm definitely not the one, even when it comes to Indian food, because I just don't know enough. I'm making it the way I want to make it. And so with the pasta recipes, you're right. This is the first time I did a cookbook with pasta recipes because I was very terrified of people who might um, emotionally charged up about certain ideas being changed and I tested it out so I said you know I do get this question a lot from people who have bought my previous cookbooks and they say Nick why don't you ever do pasta recipes don't you eat pasta and I blow it off because I just wasn't comfortable because people do get emotionally charged about very popular dishes so what I did was I started testing it out on the blog and in my newsletter telling people oh this is my roasted tomato miso spaghetti sauce which is actually in the book it turned out that when I posted that recipe, people loved it so much. I, I think as of two date, it has 2 million views on my blog because it's so popular. And it's also one of those things that's so easy. Again, I'm a huge fan of you know using miso for vegetarian dishes to build that umami because it's quick, it's fast. It also does one other thing. It thickens sauces because it has native starch from the beans. So it just makes everything uh, fast and quicker. And why not? Because I also don't always keep anchovies at home. And there are people that eat or don't eat fish for various reasons. So this was such an easy thing to do. So in a lot of the recipes, I found that putting miso with any cheese-based ingredient with pasta works beautifully well. And so when I built the recipes like the broccoli miso pasta, I said, okay, you know, I want this in here, but I also want something fun. So that preserved lemon bits in there just for that pop of flavor. And for me, it's all about flavor at the end of the day. I want people to cook something that tastes good. Otherwise, I won't put it out. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next, you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. And I love that your pasta recipes, I think all of, I haven't made all of them yet, but you are big on using the pasta water. And that is such a huge ingredient and one that, I mean, I sort of knew it growing up. My mother was kind of like your mother where it was, my mother always jokes. She says, she, God, what does she say? She says, she eats to live and I live to eat. And that is very true. Like to me, <laughs> cooking is just a passion. I love it. If I yeah. could just start cooking every day at two o'clock, I would. Unfortunately, I have a job and kids and that's not always possible, but sometimes it is. And you, so many of your, like that sauce you were just talking about, the broccoli miso one, the sauce is basically miso, Parmesan cheese, 
a good bit of pasta water. And then you mm-hmm. get, I think you even mentioned this, some of the littler bits of broccoli do start to break down and end up kind of dissolving into the sauce, which I think is beautiful. I mean, my daughter, and it was just my daughter and I that night, we crushed almost all of it. I wake up the next morning, the leftovers are gone. She just took them oh, to wow. school, which is awesome. I was like, yeah. oh my God, this is great. That's a huge win. But it's so simple. It was so quick. That was the other thing I could not get over how fast it came together. And again, I think using the pasta water, which is there, it's just free. Otherwise, you're putting it down the drain, is so key to, honestly, so many pasta dishes. I know there's a few exceptions, but the majority of the ones I really love to make, I'm getting some of the pasta water in. A little or, or you know, you some of yours call for a half a cup or more, but it gives that body that I just don't know another way to replicate. Absolutely. You know, one of the things I've become more conscious, especially during the pandemic and over the past couple of years is, Minimizing steps in the kitchen, not only just to reduce people's time, but also from an environmental aspect. And I think, what am I going to do with all this pasta water? I don't oversalt my pasta water. In fact, I tell people how much salt I add to so many liters or whatever. Uh, that's important to me. But what I do is with the pasta water is as much of it I can use in recipes. I'll use it because it gets thickened because of uh, the flavors that, of the starch that's in the pasta. And then also it absorbs some of those flavors that leach out. So it's a fun way to bring back those nutrients and not waste them. Because I just feel sometimes with certain recipes, even though the intent is good, often we waste too much. Because think about all these things that we dehydrate. On one hand, we spend all this money and resources to add water to vegetables and then or in fruit. And then at the same time, we're telling people to spend more money and electricity to dehydrate them. So, you know, those are the things I'm starting to be, as I get, probably this is as I get older, I'm becoming more and more conscious about these paradoxical balances that have been established. And if I can provide ways to people to just save money and, you know, waste less without giving a lecture, it's easier. (laughs) So you talk a little bit in the intro about different ways we get vegetables. You just hinted at that too. We're heading into the winter, at least here in the, I live in the mid-Atlantic. And so there isn't a lot of local fresh produce available. What vegetables do you recommend to people that they say, hey, this one's great to go get canned, frozen? Because they don't all work the same. Some are great. I remember yeah. seeing Gordon Ramsay and it shocked me. He's like, frozen peas are fine. It's like, mm-hmm. he's, I, he didn't just swear at me for using frozen peas. This is amazing. So what are what are some of the ones you you recommend, especially for those of us who live in colder climates? Absolutely. I mean, I live in LA and I keep a stash of frozen vegetables all the time. And even can because uh, convenience, honestly, and I don't always remember to brine or soak my beans. So it's really helpful. In in terms of frozen vegetables, peas are definitely a good one to have. Uh, you know, those bags that come with the chopped mirepoix, like the carrots, onions, celery all together. That's really good because sometimes I really do not want to buy a whole thing of celery and then not use it. Right. For really one great rib. way. Yeah. And this is, it's kind of, it's not that expensive. It's already like pre-weighed and whatever. You don't have to do any math. It's easy. Uh, other vegetables that I like are okra. So I'm a huge okra fan. Frozen okra is really great. Uh, fresh spinach. Sometimes you, it's better just to buy, if you, have a, if you have limited space in your refrigerator, buy frozen spinach because it's already shrunk down. You'll get exactly how much a recipe tells you that you need. 16 ounces, you can get it versus buying maybe like 200 ounces to get that amount. Um, you know, uh, what else is really good? Bell peppers. I've seen frozen bell peppers sometimes that I've picked up that are really good. Mushrooms, not a vegetable, but still really good. Uh, yeah, 
there's uh, there's just so much that's available. And one of the things people should not look down upon them is because food technology is constantly improving and companies are spending millions and millions of dollars into it. So the efficiency at which these things are being frozen, not freeze burning and uh, drying up is amazing. It's so good. I think back to, I grew up in the seventies and the eighties in the frozen vegetables my mom would cook cook it's just no no comparison at this point i think of green beans she used to make where they were mush by the time they got to the table um mm-hmm. or you might say they were very english when they got to the table but now you can get good quality frozen green beans we do trader joe's a lot and they hold up and yeah. so that's that's one i like to keep i usually keep a bag of frozen corn because it's something everybody in the house agrees yeah. on too like and that's one that freezes beautifully and that's mm-hmm. Um, I just made an auto langi recipe the other day that called for chickpeas. And by the time I decided I was going to make it, it was already the afternoon. I was like, oh, I don't have chickpeas now. So go grab two cans of chickpeas. Boom. Ready to go. Mm-hmm. So that's another one. Love to keep in the house. Yeah. Canned tomatoes also. And a lot of dishes. I, yes. this book, I tell people buy canned tomatoes, buy tomato paste because the flavor is more concentrated and better. Yep. Yes. I actually ended up buying tomato powder a little while ago okay. because I kept running. I would run into the problem of, you know, you get a toothpaste tube of tomato paste and you use this much and then suddenly it's not good anymore. So the tomato powder lasts a good bit longer. And I think it's basically the same. It functions the same. At it's least. the same. Yeah. Yes. I also wanted to ask, since we're heading into the holiday season, I always have readers ask, what what gifts do you recommend in the kitchen? What items do you recommend in the kitchen? You do have some here at the front of the book. What are some of the things that are musts for you? And you can be a little, you know, they don't they can be niche or extravagant. I mean, people are always asking me for things. And I'm kind of at the point now where I've just like I've been an adult for so long, I have all the things. So I run uh-huh. out of ideas sometimes. <laughs> okay. So one of the things I love, and this is for people who I love gadgets, not big, big gadgets, but I'm a huge fan of gadgets that actually do a bunch of things. So one of the things I've fallen in love with is Zwilling's Fresh and Save storage device. It's a vacuum system. They make reusable plastic bags. They also make glass containers and plastic containers to store food. And you can do both dry and wet. And all you do is it comes with this small USB handheld pump. You put on, you put it on top. It takes care of it. So if you're sous-being, if you're storing stuff, it's your go-to. And then another thing, I, I just got back from London and I'm in love with the baking culture in London. So I've treated myself. I've got on order two cookbooks from the Bread Ahead Bakery in Borough Market who do the donuts and they have a baking school. So I got the baking school cookbooks. I highly recommend that to everyone. Um, beautiful book. And then Fortitude, which is another bakery where I had mince pies and I'm hoping to create those mince pies this month. But I was blown away by the bakery culture in London. My wife is Welsh, so she has introduced ah. me to some of the some of the baking culture. Her parents were born there. She was born here. Okay. So I believe we have some Walker's mince pies in the freezer right oh, now. Oh, nice. And okay. <laughs> yes. There'll be a steamed pudding at Christmas. There always is. I'm generally the one who lights it on fire, but she does all the work. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And they um, one thing I love having gone there last year, too, to London and then to Cardiff and some other towns in Wales, too. They don't skimp on the fat in the baking no they don't no we're just baking we're doing it they do they're much one of the things i did notice and this is with even the recipes that are written there's less salt and less sugar used in a lot of the food but there's uh, they don't compromise on fat they'll actually add a little more just to get the texture right i see i appreciate that right to me it's it's not these are not everyday foods yeah. So if I'm making that, you know, for thanksgiving last week i made a pumpkin pie i'm making a pumpkin pie i'm using the heavy cream 
I'm putting the stick of butter in the in the in the mm-hmm. pie crust. Or the other day I made, I don't know if you're a Great British Bake Off watcher, but there was this season they had a lemon thyme cake that was like a bundt cake, but it was it was a pound cake okay. type recipe. Three sticks of butter. I was like, we're putting three sticks of butter in. There's no substitutions. I'm making a cake. We're gonna make this right. It was amazing too. It was so easy. But it was the same thing. Like you just this is cake. I'm not having cake every day of the year. Absolutely. But I'm gonna make a cake. I'm gonna do it correctly and and not skimp on the fat. Um, I did also want to ask a little bit about um going back to what you said, that first chapter, the Amaryllis ones as well. Mm-hmm. One thing that I have I hear from I've heard this from readers when I've suggested certain things, and frankly, I run into this sometimes too, is okay. the substitutability of a lot of those ingredients. You talk a lot about you mentioned in the intro too that this is a baking cookbook. This is not a baking cookbook, it's not a dessert cookbook. So you can substitute quite a bit. Mm-hmm. When I'm lucky, I have a Wegmans I could practically walk to. I can usually get shallots and leeks, etc. But do you find that for folks who maybe live in a you know, without that same kind of access too, do you what advice do you give them? Do you find, hey, you can use a red onion instead of a shallot. You can use white or yellow onions instead of leeks. It's, it's not going to be exactly the same. But, you know, it's sort of a, is this a category where you say, don't worry too much about it. You can make this work with some substitutions. Absolutely. And, you know, it's not only about accessibility. Sometimes people might just not like the taste of something um, or they may not have it on hand. And so with even with the garnishes, I tell people, hey, you know what? You don't like cilantro use parsley. I think it'll work here. Use chives. It, uh, this book has recipes for cassava, African yams, which are not sweet potatoes, and yuca. And I've told people, hey, you know what? They're actually really starchy. If you can't find these vegetables, because I know they're not that easy to find for everyone, go and use regular potatoes because they have that same starchy nature. The techniques will apply and you can recreate the same dishes and you know just swap. So swapping is actually really easy. And whenever possible, I told people what to do, because at the end of the day, I want you to try it out, not be bogged down so much with, oh, I can't do this because I don't have it. Last thing I wanted to just mention, and I want to sort of make this clear for folks who haven't picked up on this. This is not a vegetarian or a vegan cookbook. Many, many of your recipes do include meat as another part of the dish. You mentioned uh, you mentioned dishes that are stuffed with beef. There's a butter chicken recipe that I'm dying to try. I think that actually has your beloved okra in it, if I remember correctly. Um, and so do you find that – I'm curious how much of this translates into your home cooking as well. Do you find you're drifting a little more towards – trying to be a little more vegetable focused. I know plant focused is kind of the buzzword now. And I would love to tell you I do that, except that practically speaking, I have three kids who will not eat a plant focused dinner. Mm-hmm. But I want us to, we're just trying to nudge ourselves that way where meat is just less the star of the show or less often the star of the show. And that's one of the reasons I really love the cookbook so far is that it's just allowing me to, the meat's not off the plate. We're just mm-hmm. pushing it out from the center a little bit. Yeah. I, you know, that was really important to me because a large part of my audience still eats meat and I didn't want to write a book and then say, oh, you know, you have to eat vegetables because this is what everybody's doing. No, my goal was to say, okay, are you curious? Are you interested in increasing your vegetable consumption a little more than normal? Then this book is for you. Of course, there are recipes that are solely vegetarian and vegan in this book. And then there are, I think, like five or six that have meat in them, but you can swap those out or leave them. And I think these days there are so many choices available from plant, from those plant-based lab-raised, lab-synthesized meats to, um, you know, just popping in uh, vegetables somewhere. For example, I think a really good example is the 
Kung Pao recipe in the book. So usually Kung Pao is made with chicken at Chinese restaurants. What I did for this book was I said, let's use sweet potatoes. I think it'll work really well because it has, when it's roasted, it has that meaty texture. The sweetness plays off really well against the Shazuan peppercorns and the chilies. So it is possible to just reduce your consumption of meat, but not give it up. But, and I think that's a better way to convince people to make changes versus some, you know, go cold turkey. Right. Yes. Pun intended. Yeah. Pun intended. <laughs> My guest today has been the great Nick Sharma. His newest book, Veg Table, Recipes, Techniques, and Plant Science for Big Flavored Vegetable Focused Meals is out now. You can find him on Instagram and threads at a brown table and on Substack at nicksharma.substack.com. Nick, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Keith. This was a blast. That's all for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. And if you can't hear it in my voice, I'm just getting over a cold here. I've managed to get through this intro without coughing once, which is a major accomplishment. But that is just a good time for me to remind you to stay safe. There is COVID out there. I don't actually have COVID, but I have some kind of nasty respiratory thing. And maybe if I'd worn a mask a little more often, I wouldn't have gotten it. Who knows? But I can think that at least. And I'm going to be traveling soon uh, for the winter meetings. I'll be traveling around the holidays. I will be masking. And I know not most people aren't doing that anymore, but please consider it. COVID is back. The flu is around. Get your shots. Put your mask on. Don't get sick. 